Welcome to the Commentary Magazine podcast for today, Wednesday, September 21st, 2022. I am Noah Rothman. With us, as always, is AEI scholar and commentary contributor. Commentary contributor, you corrected me on this yesterday, Christine. What is your title again? Well, you know, I'm still lobbying for Zarina, but I think what John is calling me now is media commentary, media, media columnist. columnist. That's right. Something. It changes with such regularity. Really but Hey, you works for me. <laughs> she's a part of the commentary family, Christine Rosen and uh, senior editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hey, no. Executive, Executive editor, editor but, but, but who's counting? No, I should be. Um, having massacred the introduction of this podcast, uh, I'm going to introduce today's guest. A also a senior AEI fellow and regular commentary contributor, Adam White. Adam White, thank you very much for being here. Nailed that one, Noah. <laughs> I took my time with that one. Um, today's a legal podcast. Yesterday, we were doing a very sober analysis of public health policy. Today, we're going to be doing a very irreverent analysis of American legal policy as it relates to the Supreme Court. Yesterday, we spent a fair amount of time talking with uh, Tevi Troy about Joe Biden's not extemporaneous, but certainly not scripted comments uh, in which he declared the coronavirus pandemic over. And we we're talking about some of the policy implications that might arise from that declaration, because while the administration might want to say the pandemic is over to achieve some political benefit, um, they're not acting like it. In fact, there's quite a few issues before the courts right now that are predicated on the assumption that the national emergency and the pandemic that spurred it are very much alive and and with us. Among them, uh, federal legis- uh, litigation right now over a uh, a vaccine mandate for federal uh, employees, um, the student loan forgiveness debt transference scheme that the president has uh, has embarked upon uh, is rooted in the idea that the pandemic is is so fierce that you can't enter the workforce and pay back these loans. I st- and Adam, you can correct me, but I still think that. Uh, there's litigation before the courts about the um, the FAA mask mandate and uh, the administration trying to retain its executive authority to impose those uh, mandates on executive agencies, the pandemic notwithstanding. Um, Adam, what is your impression of how the courts will respond, if they respond at all, uh, to the president's declaration that the pandemic that justifies so much of this policy is in fact behind us? Justices and judges don't live in a vacuum. Of course, they read the news. They're aware of what's going on in these debates in public. Uh, At the same time, when judges decide cases, they are somewhat limited in the extent to which these outside statements matter to the case. Judges are generally, it's a formal matter, bound by the record. And so statements like we're seeing now to the Biden administration create a a difficult needle for judges to thread. We probably shouldn't exaggerate the effect of some of these statements. You think back a good example years ago, uh, Trump versus Hawaii, the big case over the third iteration of President Trump's Muslim ban. There, There was a big debate around the court about how much stock the justices should put in President Trump's outside statements, um, his campaign statements, and so on. Except there's one difference for at least some of these cases that I think we need to keep an eye on. Uh, and in particular, I'm focused here on the on the loan jubilee. What are we calling it? The, the loan transfer, the debt <laughs> transfer? Uh, Christine, I'm insisting gonna... it's a debt. Yeah, no forgiveness. Do not use the word forgiveness. I will yeah, become I enraged. Think, I, I heard you're getting that one trademarked for the t-shirts and everything. <laughs> This is actually a place where the Biden administration is in real trouble, I think, as a legal matter, uh, because the Justice Department made clear in their memo authorizing this ridiculous loan jubilee that the whole legal hook for this 
was the HEROES Act and the connection of this action by the administration to the pandemic. Of course, we all know that's all just a total pretext, right? It's all been about the, the long stated goal of progressives to reduce these loans as a kind of middle-class or upper middle-class economic uh, boon. Well, when the Biden administration actually goes to implement what President Biden has announced, they're gonna be in a real jam because the, the Department of Education and anybody else who implements this policy, as a legal matter, they need to stay on the right side of the HEROES Act. They need to keep connecting this to the pandemic. But at the same time, they have to be honest about what they're doing. Uh, and the fact is that any judge now can see clearly this isn't really about the pandemic. It's certainly not about the, the current impacts of the pandemic. This really is just a, 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 a subsidy for this favored group of, of progressive stakeholders. But this case where I'm getting at is this case reminds me a lot about the, a lot of the Trump administration's handling of the census a few years ago. President Trump, his administration announced they wanted to add the citizenship question to the census, which they could lawfully do. But when this case got to court and eventually to the Supreme Court, the judges said to the, to the agency in that case, the Department of Commerce, what you're doing here is a total pretext. We know that you're not doing this because of your stated reasons had to do with, I think, allocation of, of, of voting districts or something. They said, we all know this is about citizenship and immigration issues. And so if the agency wants to change this policy, they can do it. They just need to do it honestly. They can't do it through pretext. For me, the Biden administration's approach to this loan issue is just the mirror image of that census question. And my guess, and again, Chief Justice Roberts wrote that opinion for the court. My guess is if this case gets into court, uh, this issue of the loan jubilee, then you're gonna see very similar arguments. I think the Biden administration has put itself in a serious bind. That's very interesting. Um, so uh, briefly, I'm sorry, but just, just to maybe, for more t-shirt purposes, some ugly naked punditry. Somebody transcribed that yesterday and it was rather graphic, but I'm gonna embrace it, ugly naked punditry. Uh, so there's some strategy on the part of uh, people who are supportive of this, thinking that it was on shaky legal ground, but it would be overturned in the courts and it would be Republicans who brought that suit and Republicans would get blamed for it. Is that totally undermined now? Because if the court's rationale is Joe Biden said the pandemic's over, it's Joe Biden did a stupid thing and then he did a stupid thing that invalidated the stupid, the first stupid thing. Now, first of all, we don't know that whether this case will actually get to court. It's not clear who could actually bring the case and maintain it in court. But I totally agree with you that, that to the extent that the Biden administration itself has now created this legal mess around its policy, it's going to be a lot harder to blame the litigants for just going to court and asking for straightforward application of the same kind of doctrine that the Roberts Court applied to the Trump administration. Hey, uh, yeah, my question is, to what extent... Uh, do, will the justice should this get get to the get to the court? Would the justices thinking hang on whether or not what Biden said is connected to actual official policy? Right. I mean, you you could one could argue that um, maybe it's 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 a stretch to say well an offhand comment about his surroundings during an interview. Um, uh, needs to necessarily shape how we would interpret uh, uh, this this jubilee. Yeah, like I said, the justices and the judges, they don't live in a vacuum. And so they're as aware of, as any of us are that President Biden is not exactly throwing his fastball anymore and that the administration tends to very quickly marginalize the things that President Biden says. I think for these purposes, what's important is 
in the first instance, is not so much what Biden says. It's going to be what the agencies say themselves when they implement these policies. That's where the court will start. They'll judge what the agency is saying against what the rest of the administration is saying, the Justice Department and others. But the president's statements, I think, at this point in the rollout to the policy, right? It's not like these are just statements he made on the campaign trail or statements he just made off the cuff. The statements of the Biden administration and the White House, the administration more generally said in the rollout of the very policy, I think that's the subset of statements that's going to become very, very difficult for the education department to, to sidestep. Well, and I think it's also it's, it's an important point because it, this this question of whether public statements, including off the cuff statements to reporters or scripted statements in a 60 minutes interview to a reporter uh, by a president should be considered evidence uh, gathered, you know, in, in any of these cases. It was both for it, it was and it wasn't for Trump. Right. It was invoked often. Um, certainly the Muslim ban and his remarks about uh, Muslims was invoked in those cases. But it, that's a bad precedent, right? I mean, you don't, you know, executive authority is already fairly powerful right now. And I'm not sure that we want presidents thinking, I can say anything because they'll just walk it back. I mean, it, you know, it, it, and then having the courts take them seriously sometimes and literally other times, who knows how, how that's going to work. I think it, it leads to a lot of policy confusion, but it could lead to eventual legal confusion. How do you establish a standard whereby the president's statements are on the record, evidentiary statements in, in terms of judging the constitutionality of a policy? And when is it just, Joe being Joe or, you know, Trump being Trump. I, I feel like there's it's very difficult to have a, a fine a, a line drawn there. Those are all fair points. The, the challenge comes for the courts in their institutional role. Right? At the end of the day, we want the courts to be to, to decide cases mainly on the basis of what's in the record of the cases. Right. What's in the agency documents, what's in the official statements related to the agency. The more that the courts range widely looking at 60 minutes interviews, tweets, and not just contemporaneous ones, but, but ones from months or weeks or years earlier. You don't want the courts sort of ranging that widely and basically taking every passing statement or misstatement that a president or a presidential candidate makes and sort of putting into their permanent file for the rest of their administration. At the end of the day, the courts have to draw some kind of line over what they're around what they're going to con consider. In this case, again, I keep harping on the, the, the loan forgiveness case, is that here you have a particular policy that's going to be implemented by a particular agency, you have a specific Justice Department memo on the issue, and you have the president's statements in the rollout of that policy. That's why this case in particular is the perfect storm. You can look a little bit more broadly. The Roberts Court has been worried about, especially Roberts, actually, in cases where sometimes he's with the progressives, sometimes he's with the conservatives. But over and over again, he worries a lot about just the unsteadiness of modern administration, the way policies just change widely, wildly from one administration to the next, or sometimes within an administration. A lot of his decisions have been efforts to steady administration, maybe slow down the pace of change a bit. And so I think a lot of what Biden's doing on this policy, and maybe some others, is speaking to that particular concern for 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 President for Chief Justice Roberts, um, but we'll see how the other justices react. Obama loved to govern that way too, right? Like I'm just going to whip out my pen and legislate because oh, Congress is too slow. So that yeah, that makes sense that he would be seeing that in the long long view. And the courts took a particularly dim view of that in the long run. Uh, Adam, I should note, is the author of the cover essay in the October issue of Commentary. God save this honorable court. And we can too. I want to get to that in detail because it requires a lot of unpacking. 
But before we do, I want to pole vault off uh, Christine's invocation of the 45th president to get Adam's uh, take on some updates that we've had from the uh, the special master reviewing these uh, classified documents that all parties have agreed to, DOJ and, and the Trump camp, Judge Raymond Deary, who was uh, rather scathing uh, towards uh, the Trump counsel yesterday. Quote, my view of it is you can't have your cake and eat it. Um, the Trump administration, he complained, is uh, alleging that quite a lot of these documents are declassified, and he is demanding proof to suggest that these documents are declassified. Otherwise, the only basis on which he can judge their classification level is the stamp that says SCI, um, suggesting here that early on the Trump uh, wing's defense of the president, that he had these Obi-Wan Kenobi-like powers and could simply wave a hand over these documents and they would subsequently be declassified absent any proof of anything other than the president uh, ex post facto thinking that they should be declassified. Um, what are your what's your take on uh, Judge Deary's um, rather stern admonition here? And what does that say about where we are in this process? I think about the old line about taking Trump seriously or literally. I've always thought the better way to take Trump is neither seriously nor literally, but hypothetically, because sort of with, with so often his his legal arguments and so on, they always sort of surround hypotheticals. Well, maybe this happened, maybe that happened. And that can play the thread out for a while. But now we're seeing that they actually need to make good on some of these 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 hypothetical bets they've been making. And so it's been interesting to see Judge Deary really push the uh, President Trump's lawyers to put up or shut up, to explain, well, what actually is the case here? And in particular, uh, with respect to executive privilege, you know, he's asking them how he ought to go about ruling on these questions of executive privilege. It's been kind of funny to watch the Trump lawyers say, well, we don't want to get into that quite yet. We don't want to telegraph our strategy on privilege. And Judge Deary is telling them, no, that's the whole point of what you asked for with the special master. You wanted a process to be careful to protect the documents that don't that aren't rightfully in the possession of the Justice Department right now, either because they're personal, um, uh, the personal property of, of Trump, or to segregate out other material that might be subject to executive privilege or not, uh, or, or from the Justice Department's view it has national security implications. Well, now Judge Deary, he has a job to do, and he's going to do it in spite of the Trump lawyers wanting to just wait and wait and wait. So they're to keep using metaphors, they're like now the, the dog that caught the school bus, and they're going to have to do something with it. I, I'll just say, while we're sort of making fun of this, I also want to point out, it feels like just yesterday that the mere appointment of this special master was seen as the pathetic and craven act of a Trump judge, as they all said, it's funny how quickly things change. Now, suddenly, Judge Deary is uh, a hero. And I suppose Judge, is it Judge Cannon, uh, the, the trial judge, she'll, maybe she'll bask in the reflected glory of Judge Deary. I think that the last few days really just confirm my initial instinct that the special master appointment was an extraordinary um, extraordinary thing, but in an overall sort of extraordinary set of events. It could very well be prudent. We need to judge it by the, the way the process actually plays out. And so far, it seems that the special master process is playing out pretty sensibly. 
Yeah, I noticed that a lot of the people who were denouncing Judge Ken's uh, initial decision to allow a special master are just gleefully spreading the quote that that the special master said, Judge Jerry's, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. This was this was what was all over, you know, social media yesterday. And like, look, finally, exactly, exactly. Let's get him. (laughs) Ironic. Let me talk. Yeah. Talk about having their cake and eating it, too. I mean, the, 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 the critics of Judge Deary's appointment are now having it both ways. Well, so Adam, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but your impression was that the Trump camp's intention here was when they pursued a special master was never to have a special master, but just to delay the game. And 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 they did, but now they've got to live with the rest of this. Fair enough. Um, I'm going to postpone some of this the other punditry talks because I want to get into your article, Adam. And rather than summarize it, because it is a, a very comprehensive piece. Um, why don't you give us a uh, 30,000 foot perspective on your cover piece? Uh, once again, God save this honorable court and we can too in the October issue of commentary. Yeah, thanks. Uh, enough of my views on all these other topics. Now my views on my article. Um, this article comes out of uh, really my, my service on President Biden's commission on the Supreme Court. You know, I served last year for a year on this commission, uh, this 36-person group project to study the state of the Supreme Court and proposals to to reform the court, to pack the court, and so on. And throughout the whole process, I was really struck by the debates around the court's legitimacy. Uh, Those who are arguing that the court uh, has become illegitimate somehow. Um, Those who say, no, the court is legitimate because when it decides cases the right way. I found the the debate fascinating, but, but mostly frustrating. And then in the very end of last year, we saw a few things develop. We saw Senator Warren write an op-ed in the Boston Globe saying that every action the Roberts court takes is presumptively illegitimate because President Trump, because of the way President Trump uh, appointed these justices. Um, And then even more striking uh, the night that that the the draft Alito opinion in the Dobbs case leaked, uh, I saw on TV uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin give a pretty wild interview where he said, you know, the problem isn't so much that the court is becoming illegitimate. The problem is that the court has always basically been illegitimate, always a tool of the powerful. Um, and then he, he sort of added, yeah, it's kind of had a halo, a faint halo of legitimacy for the last few decades, um, maybe since Brown versus Board of Education, maybe since Roe v. Wade, but, but we progressives need to keep in mind that that really is sort of a break from history. And I, I mean, obviously the Supreme Court's decided some cases incorrectly, some horrifically wrong, right? Dred Scott, most famously in Korematsu and other cases. But this idea that the Supreme Court's legitimacy was, was, is sort of permanently in doubt or that it's in doubt just because of uh, the way that, that, that President Trump got to appoint three justices just struck me as wrong. Throughout my time on the, on the court commission, I kept saying the court's legitimacy has to be defined in its function as a court. Right. Deciding cases neutrally and independently, um, according to the rule of law, um, not 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 being a political actor that chooses what it wants to do on a given day, but just deciding cases as a matter of duty. And so through that and through the statements we saw in the last few months, I started working through this theory of, well, what makes the court legitimate? And frankly, what could it actually do right now to, to maybe become a better version of itself? Because this piece... Uh, in the magazine, and, and thanks again, you guys, for publishing it, um, 
this piece is not just sort of a, 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 a rah-rah session for the Roberts court. I do think that the court is in a, a very delicate moment politically, um, and they, they don't need to sort of act like a political weather vane, but they do need to be mindful of, of the limited role, the crucial but limited role that the courts have in our system. And there are some places where I think the court can improve what it's doing. We're going to get to all of those, um, <clears throat> but briefly, let's let's dwell on the critiques of the court as an illegitimate institution. As you write, uh, many of those critiques are, quote, disconnected from the justice's own work as judges. Uh, it, insofar as they are critiques in pursuit of a rationale, um, there's a conditionality imposed on the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. And those conditions are highly subjective and volatile and change. Uh, and they have much to do with preferred political outcomes. And correct me if I'm wrong, but to summarize your argument is that the legitimacy of the court should be predicated on what the court does, uh, not necessarily what it doesn't do, or certainly what the justices, um, what political conditions the justices' decisions are contributing to, whether or not that is their intended, intended effect. Yeah. There is any number of people out there right now that either want to delegitimize the court's decisions because they don't like them, uh, or that they want to basically talk us into a legitimacy crisis that would justify something as radical as court packing. Um, you know, when I was on the court commission studying this, I was really struck by the fact that the court packing talk didn't start after the whole Merrick Garland, Neil Gorsuch thing. And it didn't really start after uh, Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away and was succeeded by Amy Coney Barrett. A lot of the rhetoric really ramped up when Justice Kennedy announced his retirement um, and then was later succeeded by Judge by Justice Kavanaugh. Back in, in those days, uh, I wrote a piece for Weekly Standard saying uh, it was the end of uh, Justice Kennedy's Camelot. This idea that the progressives could always sort of count on the Supreme Court to be moving in the right direction. And that suddenly came to an end with the retirement of Justice Kennedy. So I think uh, when I, to your, your point earlier, Noah, about, about uh, solutions uh, in search of, or you know, solutions in search of a problem, the solution is court packing or negating the impact of the Supreme Court's decisions. And we've seen a few attempts to rationalize that. Again, some of them go to the way that justices have been appointed. Some of these arguments go to the, the, the court just getting these some cases wrong in, in the eyes of their critics. Some of the critics focus specifically on the court's decisions regarding voting rights and say, well, this is entrenching uh, a minority party in power constitutionally for the long term, and that's what delegitimizes it. I don't think any of those critiques really hold water, uh, but at the end of the day, what they certainly don't do is begin with the notion of the court's particular role as a court, and, and you know, rather than criticizing the court for not being a good enough legislature. Well, there, oh, go ahead, Abe. I'm sorry. The the to me, the fascinating thing about that about about the idea of criticizing the court for not being good enough legislature is that that criticism is itself grounded in an idea of the court. That would render it illegitimate, right? I mean that 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 is the, that that is the one of the ultimate dangers here, um, that the court act like a legislature, and the complaint that it's not doing that um, is the sort of inverse of of a of a of an actual criticism of its of the court's legitimacy. Well, and that that uh, one of the great things about 
your piece, Adam, is that it it puts a lot of the contemporary debate about the court's legitimacy in a broader historical context, right? So one of the great lines you have in there is uh, you were very kind to the to the liberals who are arguing that justice is appointed by uh, presidents they don't like or illegitimate because you point out that Brandeis was appointed by our perhaps our most racist president and horrible human being Woodrow Wilson. So is everything that came from his pen on the court then thus rendered illegitimate? So I, I like that line. But I really liked at the end of your piece, you have you 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 were talking about the Federalist number 78. And one of the things that Hamilton warned against, and he says uh, he, he was worried about what he called dangerous innovations in the government and serious oppressions of the minor party in the community. And that that phrase dangerous innovations really struck me because nowadays we always hear the word innovation as a very positive thing, right? Innovation is great. Let's have more of it. But what I think the founders are really grappling with there is that certain some innovations actually will lead us down a path of ruin. And we should be careful in, in assuming that every new idea thrown out there, say, for example, court packing or, you know, making uh, adding more states to the and all the stuff that we, all the sort of progressive schemes we've seen to undermine the legitimacy of the court, um, those can have negative consequences too. And so I, I was both uh, heartened to, to see the grounding in history. We've we've been here before. We've seen previous attacks on the court in, in uh, previous eras, and we've dealt with them. So this isn't new, but some of the innovations that are being proposed should be should be greeted with, with healthy skepticism, as I think you show in the piece. Christine, I actually want to um, break out a little bit of this because I, I excerpted a quote from that passage that you're talking about, Adam piece where he's summarizing Hamilton and Federalist 78. Quote, he initially notes that whenever there happens to be an irreconcilable irreconcilable variance between the Constitution and the statute, the Constitution must prevail. But this is a very careful choice of words, for it reminds us that any reconcilable variance should be resolved without striking down the statute, rather by accepting a reasonable interpretation of the statute that avoids unconstitutionality. Now, I've heard Justice Roberts' decision in NFIB v. Sibelius in that um, bad decision, but ironically preserved the space a few years hence for the political branch of government to do away with the individual mandate that was uh, subject to interpretation of the court there, which is a much more durable resolution to the issue, even though it was thrown into a tax code reform bill, it nevertheless became law as a result of legislative affairs and has the, the legitimacy that it's that that process provides. So Justice Roberts, bad legal decision, good politics. Well, a little early in the morning to be jumping to the defense of, of the NFIB <laughs> decision. I'd say I, I'd say I, I'm not necessarily pro the NFIB decision, but maybe I'm anti-anti NFIB decision in the in the sense that um I, I think that Chief Justice Roberts, you know, went too far with that case. But his initial instinct of saying, well, we should look for every reasonable grounds on which to affirm a statute before we strike it down. We should strike the statute down as a last resort, not a first resort or even a second resort. I think that's the right instinct. I think, you know, maybe his, his final interpretation of, 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 of what the, the individual mandate was, was meant to do, whether it was really a tax or not, that might have been a bridge too far. But I, I, I'm glad that he's, you know, he, he at least has the instinct to start with that. With with that with that question, I keep saying, what's the role of the court? Well, really, the better way to ask the question is, what's the role of the courts in a Republican lower our Republican constitutional system? And that's the real challenge of of judicial review in our system, that we do need the courts to be a bulwark of the rule of law, but we also need them to understand uh, or to respect the space for 
for legislatures to, to govern in the first instance. And this is a part of Hamilton's thought, Federal 78, all the law students read it, but maybe not closely. And I think this is the really key to Hamilton's thought was, yeah, we do need the judges to, to, um, to exercise not force nor will, but merely judgment, just decide cases with the rule of law. But Hamilton a couple of times says that you should only strike down a law when there's no other way to uphold it. You, maybe you can, you, can, you can construe the law narrowly, you can sort of reinterpret it reasonably, um, but there, if you can find a way to leave some part of the statute intact without striking it down under the constitution, that's a good thing in our system. It leaves more questions to the political process, which is where most questions belong. Years ago, Randy Barnett wrote a, a book called The Republican Constitution. And I've always loved that title because I think it's important to remember that, you know, for me, this is not just a, a judgeocracy, right? At the end of the day, the judges have a crucial role to play, but it's not the most important role in our government. It's one of three most important roles. And we need to leave space for the legislature and the executive branch to do their part too. You um, cite Justice Kagan, who's a very astute justice and a deep thinker, um, but one of the way she described how the court retains its legitimacy is to quote is to be quote doing something that is recognizably lawlike. Now I'm not necessarily an expert on the proceedings of the courts, but this all looks pretty lawlike to me. Seems the definition of what unlawful con uh, conduct by the judiciary constitutes in the minds of its critics is a moving target and ill-defined at that. Yeah, Kagan gave a couple of talks this summer. She's been in the news a bit. She gave a talk at, at this conference that the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit hosted this summer, where she gave some really, really interesting remarks on the nature of judicial legitimacy. And a couple of times she said, you know, I'm not talking about a specific case, but of course everybody knows she's talking in the shadow of the most consequential Supreme Court decision of the last 25 years, the Dobbs case. But she sketched out what she thinks are legitimate, or I guess that's an ironic way of putting it, what are good and bad arguments about the court's legitimacy. And she said, when the public sees the court changing rapidly with just the change of, of personnel, like suddenly the law changes significantly because one person on the court changed, that might raise questions in the eyes of the public. And for what it's worth, I think that's a fair point as, in so, as far as it goes. I think, you know, to the extent that the personnel changes and the law, the precedents change, it's really incumbent upon the, the new court to explain why what they're doing is legitimate and lawful. But no, she's right. The public is going to say, wait a second, just because one justice changes, suddenly major areas of the law change. That seems a little strange. She said the justices need to apply a methodology consistently so it doesn't look like they're picking and choosing, being textualists one day and living constitutionalists the next now, Kagan was kind of agnostic there. She didn't really choose her own particular adventure. She just said, you have to pick one and stick with it. That's a fair point. And in many respects, as I point out in the piece, it sounds a lot like what Justice Scalia would say about the court's legitimacy, except he was not agnostic on the, the proper method. He was a textualist um, and an originalist. Uh, but I thought that Kagan made some, some good points. I think the problem was that Kagan's remarks then would like so many things today, gets spun out sort of in, in bullet points and talking points. I don't think people actually took what she was saying seriously enough because I don't think her criticism really was aimed at just one half of the court or one half of the courts below. I think she was making a very fair point for all judges and, and all citizens. How I, I'm curious um, because this is what, what dominated the news cycle over and over again uh, 
right after the Dobbs leak was this question of d- did this leak, which was you know unprecedented, undermine the legitimacy of the court? Because we assume it was someone from within who had access to you know these drafts and what was their motivation. And I mean, part of it's that you know it's like a murder mystery dinner party. You're like we got to figure out who did this, but and which which obviously the court is doing its own investigation. But how much do you think that was was that the signal moment of of modern legitimacy questions of the court in a way that we'll look back on in ten years and go ah that's when things started to change, or was it simply blown out of proportion and given so much air so much uh, space because it was about abortion? I mean, I'm wondering if it was like an administrative decision, you know, or, or a sort of tax law decision, would it have gotten the same? kind of of publicity? Well, it was clearly a symptom of a deeper sickness around Supreme Court politics. Uh, I think it was a bad sign that somebody in or around the court would breach that protocol because of, you know, this wouldn't happen in a tax case, right? Amazingly, even though in, in like a tax case or other areas of law, there might be enormous sums of money at issue, like in the economy for a Supreme Court decision. Um, say the, the climate case, the West Virginia case. Of course, th- that decision would never leak. None of those decisions would leak. It was only because of abortion. And so the fact that somebody in or around the court saw this as, ju- as the, the, the ends justifying the means here, I think that shows a failure of who the court is allowing to work in the court. Because I don't, I don't think a justice leaked it. My guess is it was a clerk or another staffer, right? So the, the, the fact that there was a, a clerk or another staffer in the court probably who not only thinks so low of the court, but thinks so low of his or her own boss on the court to violate this rule, I think showed that the, the Supreme Court politics have reached a pretty a pretty bad place. So I, I don't see it as a turning point so much as a, a sign of the times. It's also- you know, I, I'll just say, I'm, I had to recently read a very, very long biography of Felix Frankfurter. Um, it's by a great, a great author, a Georgetown law professor, Brad Snyder, uh, he, in, in about 400 or 500 pages into this biography of Frankfurter, he mentions in passing about another Supreme Court leak, evidently years ago in another case, not, not of the, as high profile as the, as the Dobbs case, but a significant one. Um, a clerk brought home a draft opinion and was showing it to others and trying to figure out how they could talk Justice Frankfurter out of writing this opinion. So now I'm kind of wondering how often this actually does happen, but it certainly never exploded into the public view the way that the, the Dobbs leak did. It's also a, a worrying sign, or actually a very bad sign, that we still don't know who leaked it, right? I don't know what that says exactly, uh, either either about um, sort of the, the, the court's ability to sort of get its act together or the, who may be protecting uh, the party. I was just going to also add, I think it's also a sign there's a if indeed it did turn out to be a clerk, for example, it, there's a generational difference. The, the, the younger generations have a kind of I mean, you could almost call them the whistleblower generation. They, they have this sort of absolutely irrational admiration for people who who blow up an institution on principle. But often, A, the principle is wrong. They're misguided and there were better ways to, you know, this is the conservative versus radical uh, it. it impulse but i think there is in in younger generations I don't know whether it's because of you know social media or anything else but there's this idea that 
if something is corrupt, I have a duty to blow the whole thing wide open rather than let me see if there's a way to deal with this with keeping the institutional integrity intact. And so I feel like there, there, even if it was just one person who did the leak, I fear there's a lot of sympathy in that entire cohort for that kind of tactic. Right. Well, they're the star of their own movie, but there wasn't necessarily any. I mean, what happened as a result, besides the institutional degradation that it represents? Nobody really reacted on the leak of the Alito draft, right? Republicans didn't take the two months that they were gifted to come up with a coherent policy around abortion. You know, the activist wing mobilized, but what did they stop? What did they affect? Nothing. AOC got some good photo ops pretending to be handcuffed, though. So, you know. Right. I think it did probably smooth out the political controversy around the decision, right? By the time the case was actually decided in June, um, the, the, public, the, the public has sort of been desensitized to the decision. In terms of the Chief Justice's, you know, investigation into this, it's another sign of the times. Think of all the times in the last few years we've seen somebody in government really break with norms, traditions, or rules. Um, I mean, obviously, first and foremost, President Trump, but he's not the only one. And then we see the rest of the system try to react and try to think, well, how do we push back without sort of breaking all the norms, rules, traditions ourselves? And I think the court finds itself in a similar position here, right? You've had somebody now take this extraordinary action of, of leaking this opinion out to the press. Well, the court's not really well geared to conduct, you know, like an FBI style investigation into this whodunit. Right, the, the the traditionally the each justice's chambers are sort of their own little fiefdom, right? I mean, they're all employees of the all the clerks are employees of the court, but it's not as though the chief justice is micromanaging the clerks for for the other justices. There is, you know, questions about about sort of the almost like a parallel to executive privilege, right? The the the, the sanctity of discussions within chambers. So, without really knowing what's going on in this investigation, my guess would be it'd be very difficult. For Chief Justice Roberts and the bureaucracy of the of the court to really reach into the chambers and in the clerks and and try to get this information out, I kind of I just have doubts that the the court itself will ever find the answer to this, unless the the, the leaker, you know, as you said, starring in their own movie, uh, decides to announce this. My guess is we'll find this out a few years down the road when one of the Supreme Court journalists, you know, has a big book with some blockbusters in it, and this will be one of them. But I, I, I have a lot more faith in a journalist finding this out than the court uh, investigating it out. I just don't think it's well geared for this. And in some ways, I kind of respect the court for institutionally not being well geared to have its own internal FBI. Yeah, the order of likelihood when it, or likelihood when it comes to uh, who finds out who the leaker is in Washington, wherever they happen to be in Washington, is one, an institutional process to find the leaker, extremely unlikely. Two, an investigative report that finds the leaker, slightly more likely. And three, a self-authored op-ed announcing I'm the leaker, the most likely outcome of this process. So Adam, you take just Justice Kagan's criticism very seriously, and you're not, a, you're not allergic to criticisms of the court, and you offer a couple uh, possible reforms that could preserve the court's legitimacy moving forward. Uh, three, to be exact. Uh, what's, why don't you uh, outline them before we start digging into them individually? Yeah, sure. So again, beginning with the idea that the court's there to decide cases under the rule of law, not strike down statutes as a first resort, but as a last resort. Um, and as Hamilton and others, you know, especially Hamilton, really emphasize 
the court is not, not supposed to be an energetic, willful body. It's supposed to wait and receive the cases that come to it and decide them as a matter of duty, um, as hemmed in as possible by the rule of law. Well, when you look at some of the things that happen around the court, I think there are ways the court could be a better version of itself. For a century now, almost, the Supreme Court has basically been able to choose its own docket. They don't have to hear every particular case that comes its way. They wouldn't have time to. Um, so instead, we have a process called CERT. It's, cert, it's short for cert, certiorari. Every lawyer has a different way of pronouncing it. But the justices get to vote on whether they're going to hear a certain case at all and decide it. There are good reasons for it. But the, I think we've now seen after a century of running this experiment that the court's ability to choose its own cases you know, really casts a political sort of color around the, each case from the ground up, right? The court is, announces that it it's, chooses to hear the abortion case or it chooses not to hear this other case. I'd, I'd kind of like it better, I think, if the justices would say, listen, this, we don't have a choice here. This case has come to us and we're going to have to decide it. So the first reform I propose is that Congress needs to look seriously at ways to, to, to take discretion away from the Supreme Court. Maybe specify certain classes of cases that the court has to take. I, I say in passing in the article, maybe if they were required to take every case in which a lower, the lower court rules on the constitutionality of a statute. Um, I mean, granted the court already takes most cases like that, but I think the difference, again, is that if the court were required to take those cases and not pick and choose, then they can't be blamed for, for being political in the, the makeup of the court's docket. They're just deciding cases out of a matter of duty. Um, and if the Congress isn't going to do that, then to the extent that the court could really codify somehow the standards it would apply. I, I know we know just in general, it looks for circuit splits or cases of major importance, but the more that the court could do on its own to codify and advance the standards for cert, that, and that would tie itself to the mast a little bit. That would be a good thing, but really this is a job for Congress. The second thing that I, I, I suggest, and it's sort of related to that, this is really about the justices, is that the justices have become very apt to, to announce in, in decisions, not majority opinions, but concurrences or dissents, that the justice would like to see more case, certain cases brought in the future, you know, that a certain issue is ripe for decision. You know, I, again, it's understandable. The justices every, in every concurrence or dissent, they're sketching out their individual view of the law. But to the extent that the justices explicitly invite cases, or you know, in the famous case of Justice Ginsburg in the Ledbetter case, inviting Congress to write a law, I just wish the justices would maybe take a step back and do less of that because now it's in those cases, it seems they're not just picking which cases to hear. They're almost encouraging. They are encouraging which cases to bring. And I just think it's not the right role for a court that's supposed to be restrained. Um, and then the third one, and I'll shut up, is it goes to this thing that's called, you know, ominously the shadow docket which is really just the, the court's power to grant temporary relief in emergency cases. All, all federal courts have this power to not just grant relief to parties at the end of a case, but to, to grant relief at the beginning of the case, just to kind of freeze things in place while the courts are hearing the case itself, because hearing a case could take a year or more. So courts can issue preliminary injunctions and so on. And the Supreme Court has issued more and more of these, stopping federal agency uh, actions, uh, sometimes state actions uh, in their tracks at an early stage in the litigation. Totally understandable. Again, it's this is something we, we see it sometimes in death penalty cases. But just looking at high profile federal cases 
or some of the state cases like what happened with Yeshiva University, when you have a part of government able to just unilaterally impose an immensely consequential decision, like what they've done to, to Yeshiva, what, like what we saw in the regulation of churches during COVID and so on, it's understandable that you want the courts to freeze that in its tracks until judicial review ends. That said, the court's decisions about granting or not granting that kind of relief are totally discretionary. There's very minimal rules actually binding the court's judgment there. And so that's a part of the court's work that's kind of hard to characterize as being really law bound. It's, it's part of what we call the court's equitable powers. So I, you know, I'm very sympathetic to the court using these powers. Um, I, I, I think that Justice Alito is onto something when he says the, the, the term the shadow docket is really sort of a, an ominous kind of spin on what the court's doing. Um, that's all right, that's all true, but, but I do wish that Congress would legislate some kind of standards, more specific standards, for the Supreme Court and the lower courts to, to limit this kind of discretion. I think they should also, in that same kind of legislation, maybe impose standards that would freeze major agency actions in place until judicial review ends, right? You can still have that kind of protection for individual liberty. But again, these are the kinds of things that Congress ought to be in the business of doing so that the courts don't have to exercise that kind of discretion themselves. Okay, so I want to explore some of your thinking here and having not been involved in the editorial process, I get to come at this with fresh eyes. And um, just, just taking first your um, assault on the Judiciary Act of 1925. Um, Court controls its own docket, gives the impression that they do take, quote, active resolution of issues relating to self-government, reform it, make them you know, have to take certain classes of cases. But wouldn't that mean more work for the court, which was one of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's primary justifications for court packing? Look at all this unconstitutional stuff I'm doing. Everybody's got to work now harder just to litigate all my decisions. We need more justices to, along with the age. So does, isn't this a self-justifying prophecy when giving the court more mandatory stuff to do, justify court packing in and of itself? Yeah, the New Deal was a jobs program, but especially jobs for judges. I mean, we don't really have that problem anymore, by the way. The Supreme Court's docket is very, very small. Uh, 40 years, there's a memo in the Reagan administration files, a memo that a young lawyer named John Roberts wrote because the Supreme Court uh, was complaining at the time back then that it had too much work on its hands, even with cert discretion. Uh, and they, they wanted to reduce their docket. I can't remember Robert's exact line, but it was really great. He said, you know, only school teachers and Supreme Court justices demand the entire summer off. Um, frankly, I think it might be good for the court to be busier. I mean, again, my fir first and foremost, I just think it's important for the court to have less discretion here. That, that Congress is the one deciding what cases to take. And even if it wouldn't change the size of the docket, it's just good that Congress um, and would be setting that into law more than just the, the court exercising discretion. Um, but frankly, if the court had more work on its hands, that might not be a bad thing. Once upon a time, the justices wrote much shorter opinions. Now, when they only decide 70 cases instead of a couple of hundred cases, they have time to kind of uh, you know, let loose a little bit and write you know 80 page quasi academic uh, treatises on various areas of law. I mean, as the, as the country songs uh, goes, sometimes you say it best when you say nothing at all. Maybe the court would say it better if they just said less and decided cases a little bit more succinctly. So I actually think an increase in the court's docket in some ways would be a, 
a, a, a feature, not a bug. Now, granted, that, that would mean it's getting involved in more controversies. There would be more controversy around it. The court's never going to be outside of controversy. The question is, does the controversy go to things that the court is deciding out of a matter of duty? Or is it controversy that goes to the way that the court is sort of choosing what things to be controversial in? Somebody said that I'm stealing this, but somebody had said, and it resonated with me, that as the unspoken trust around social norms and conventions uh, around the mechanisms of self-government erode, we become a more litigious society and everybody behaves more like lawyers and starts protecting themselves uh, in, in a legal fashion because they can't depend on the conventions that used to do so. Strikes me that if the Supreme Court were to grant fewer preliminary injunctions, they would be inviting the prospect of more harm, therefore increasing the amount of litigation that the court ultimately has to deal with. So aren't the increase in preliminary injunctions just an act of self-defense on the part of the judiciary? Oh, they absolutely are. Well, not, not necessarily self-defense. It's more defense of, of, of the public and, and, and public rights. I mean, right, and we, we shouldn't give short trip to that. But no, there is a measure of the court recognizing that, especially administrative agencies, they can move very, very quickly. The turning point for the court on this was a few years ago. The EPA announced a major rule regarding uh, air pollution, not a climate case, but a different case. Went all the way to the Supreme Court. The EPA lost the case. And as soon as the case was decided, the EPA, uh, either the head of the EPA under Obama or maybe just the spokesman, issued a statement saying, well, yeah, we lost the case. But on the bright side, we already forced the entire industry to comply with our rule, and they're not going to uncomply with it now. So the court's decision is kind of a moot point. That was a real wake-up call for the court, and you've seen a change in their behavior since then, moving to more and more injunctions. Um, but again, there, that is a real problem. It's a real problem that Congress needs to solve by preventing agencies from implementing these decisions so quickly uh, ahead of judicial review. Congress uh, can and, and should fix that. Well, and that's where, not to, not to become the cynic at the party here, but that's actually a huge challenge for the kind of people we elect to Congress now, right? So there's a lot of uh, voting irregularities and challenges to our voting system that we know we can fix be before the next presidential election. We know what the fix should be. There's legislation that's been drafted. But what members of Congress who want to get airtime and social media followers do is talk about, you know, uh, I'm being stripped of all my voting rights. You know, they, they speak in hyperbole, but we're asking them to govern incrementally. And that's such a weird, there, there are still people there who want to govern. But I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are, given the political constraints um, of the kind of loudest voices in the room on both sides of the aisle. This is a problem for the left and the right in, in different ways. Um, how are they going to get some sort of agreement on the the kinds of reforms you're proposing, which are all completely reasonable reforms that would help uh, restore legitimacy to the court. How can we get there given the given the partisanship of our politics right now? These oxes to get gored enough times and to have a reasonable prospect that their oxes will get gored again in the the, the short term. Um, you know, we've saw the courts, including the lower courts, pushing back against the Trump administration the Obama administration, Bush administration, now Biden. Now, I keep saying this, this issue on, on injunctions and the so-called shadow docket, it's not just a Supreme Court issue, it's, it's all the lower courts. You've, courts seen, yeah. you've seen debates for years now about trial judges issuing nationwide injunctions, right? One judge 
just stopping an entire federal program in its tracks. And again, I like a lot of those decisions, but it is sort of interesting that a single trial judge who basically gets handpicked almost by the litigants, by whoever brings the case, you know, you, you file your case in a, in a trial court in San Francisco or in, in, in Florida, right? Because you know you have a good bet of getting a, a good judge. Um, uh, that's a strange way for the courts to operate with one judge then getting to, to, to shut down everything. And so I do think there's some reasonable prospects for reform. This seems like the kind of issue that you could see senators at Senate, you know, the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, House Judiciary and others coming up with some neutral rules, especially in an era when it looks like the presidency might not stay in one party's hands for too long at a given moment in time. That might be the kind of environment where you could say, listen, over the long run, both sides are going to benefit and, and you know, bear the burdens of, of a more neutral and 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 you know steadier form of judicial review just to be as probing as possible because i have actually no objection to more restraint and less self-indulgence in concurrences and dissents but when talking about self-indulgence in concurrences and dissents where do you rank clarence thomas's concurrence and dobbs you know in some ways i'm surprised he didn't go further i thought that justice thomas how could he have gone further please oh, elaborate let me tell you, no. Well, in fact, when 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 the Alito draft leaked, and we knew well, you know, not only is Alito writing the majority, but you know that means Chief Justice Roberts probably isn't in the majority because it would seem unlikely that he would have assigned it away. Which means Thomas is the senior justice. Well, why didn't he keep it for himself? Well, maybe he has some other things he'd like to say. And I wondered if he would write at all about Congress's power or lack of power to legislate on the issue of abortion. He touched on that a few years ago in a concurrence in um, uh, related to the federal partial birth abortion statute. Um, I thought maybe he might even say something to this new debate on um, the status of, of, of the right to life, I guess, under the 14th Amendment, right? Um, the, so there are other things he could have said, but no, he, he focused on the broader issue of the so-called constitutional right to privacy under Griswold, Right, Griswold versus Connecticut, the, the the contraception case that was the forerunner to the, the Roe v. Wade abortion decision. That's a long way of saying what he mentioned in that case on this right to privacy, since it was so bound up in Roe itself, it's within sort of the that issue is within the sort of the general, I guess, ambit of the Dobbs case. I don't fault him for touching on that issue and saying we need to get back to first principles. But, you know, there is sort of a, a undercurrent or an overcurrent of that opinion where he says, you know, there, there, you know let there be future cases. And I, I just wish Justice Thomas would have stopped short of saying that in this opinion. The piece is called God Save This Honorable Court and We Can Too. It's the lead in the October issue of Commentary Magazine. It's online right now, and it may just be in your mailbox now or in the very near future. Adam White, thank you so much for joining us. Commentary Magazine listeners who are very tired of me massacring the intro won't have to hear that anymore starting tomorrow. John is back, and we miss him, and we welcome him back to the show. In the interim, though, for John, the absent John, Christine, and Abe, I'm Noah Rothman. Keep the candle burning.